the saints according to the Bible, and the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 7, God talks about his saints coming with him. In other words, these holy ones. That's what the word means. So in other words, to understand the word saint, I'll give you a quick brief Greek lesson, I guess just because I'm a nerd, but it's the, the word is hagios, which means in the singular, it means holy, and in the plural, it means saints. Now, there's something interesting you can learn about that, is that God doesn't have individual people that he calls saints. In other words, it's as a collective group that God refers to people as his saints, but he doesn't refer to one person as a saint. In other words, it's not Saint Michael, but it's just Michael, right? Now, collectively here, sitting in this room, we could be considered God's saints. Now, what does the Bible say God's saints are? If you remember the verse that we've looked at already, it's Revelation chapter 12, or Revelation chapter 14 and verse 12. It gives a very brief answer of who God's last day saints are. And it says in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 12, Here is the patience of the saints. Now the question is, who are these people? And then it gives an explanation. Revelation chapter 14, verse 12. Here are those who do what? Keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. Now the Bible gives an interesting description when it asks who the saints are. It doesn't say that it's just this this person who is supposed to be lifted up and elevated. But it just says anyone who's obedient to the word of God, right, his commandments, and does that through faith in Jesus. Can any of us be obedient on our own? Absolutely not. It's only by the grace of God coming into us, and when God looks at his last day people, he said, those are my saints. Now, the last part of that question is, should we pray to saints for intercession? Now, it was in the earlier period of the Christian Christian movement, maybe a couple hundred years after Christianity had come, and Oh, is there another question? And uh, what happened was, is that people started saying, we need someone who's going to intercede between God and us. Now, they elevated the mother of Jesus to the position of a saint, which was Mary. And we realized that Mary, even though she was very blessed by God and to have Jesus as her son, there was nothing special in the sense of she wasn't divine, right? But people started thinking, I need someone to intercede for my behalf between me and Jesus. Now, is that what the Bible tells us that we need, or is that a tradition? Notice, go with me, just we want to know what the Bible says, to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. And Mike's getting worried because I'm talking long, but we're, we're going to end it right here. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, sorry. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. And let's ask the question of how many people do we need to intercede on our behalf? In other words, do we need saints to intercede for us? Notice what the Bible says. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. It says, For there is one God and one, what is that word? Mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. Now, if we're to ask the Bible, who do we need to intercede on our behalf? Do we need a saint to go to God for us? No, we just need Jesus Christ, right, who is the only one that can be our high priest and intercede on our behalf. In other words, who are his saints? Well, by God's grace, each one of us can be, as we allow the faith of Jesus to be working out in our lives and to be obedient to him, and we can be looking forward to the hope that we have in Jesus' mediation for us. Okay, and last question. A while ago in one of the other seminars, you made the comment, you cannot see where rapture is in the Bible. And the question here also concerns, it, it talks about, um, taking one from the field and the other one being left. 
Can you elaborate on this? I'm going to elaborate on this, and I'll even let Mike sit down as I elaborate on this, because this is actually the presentation that we're looking at this evening, is looking at the question of the rapture. Now, when I said I couldn't see the rapture in the Bible, let me make a clarification. The word rapture is found nowhere in the Bible, the, the word rapture. But the concept of the rapture is found in the Bible, in this sense. The rapture means that we're to be caught up. That's what the word literally means. And it's very clear, and we're going to look at passages of Scripture, that we're going to be caught up to meet God, right? We're not left here on this earth. God is not leaving us alone. But there's going to be a time where we are brought to heaven with God. Now the question comes, is how is it that we are brought to meet God? Now, some have said, you know, and that was part of the question, what about those, the two who were in the field? One was taken and one was left, right? Matthew chapter 24 is where it talks about that. Or there's the, uh, the different passages of Scripture where Jesus comes as a thief in the night, and the question is, how is it that Jesus is coming, right? How is Jesus coming to take his people up or to rapture them home? Now, you can have a great survey of different Christians, and you will find a bunch of different answers on this topic. Now, if you think I'm lying to you, go ahead and knock on doors in your community. Just give it an, give it an hour or two, and just have the survey that says, do you believe that Jesus is coming back again? Now, if you ask, why do I know this? It's because I've done it many more than just two hours. I, I don't know, maybe I'm just a glutton for punishment. I like to know what people think. But there was, I, I went to people's door and said, are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. Do you believe Jesus is coming back? Now, many of the Christians says, yes, I believe Jesus is coming back, right? He's going to come back and take his people home. But I met many Christians who said, no, 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 I don't believe Jesus is ever coming back literally. You know, Jesus didn't mean that in a literal sense. He meant that in a spiritual sense. You know, Jesus comes into our hearts, and he doesn't ever come back physically. This is heaven on earth. He creates heaven here, and we don't ever have to leave this planet. Now, that's one idea on the rapture. Now, some people are shaking your heads, and rightfully so, because we don't see that in the Bible, and we're going to look at that very clearly. And other people say, well, I believe that Jesus is coming, and I believe that there's going to be a rapture. Now, they also attach one word before the rapture, and what is that word? A secret rapture, right? I believe that there's going to be a secret rapture where Jesus comes, or, or where people are taken to heaven secretly. Now the question is, is, is the secret rapture biblical? You'll realize that in the rapture theory, there's several different ideas on when the people are caught up. There's the idea of pre-tribulation, right? Have you ever heard that term, a pre-tribulation rapture? No one. Okay, well, if you, if you Google it, you'll find it really quick on Wikipedia or anywhere, anywhere else. What that means is Jesus is going to take his people before tribulation comes on this earth so that they never go through a hard time. Okay, that's, that's what it's talking about. Now, then there's mid-tribulation rapture. In other words, they have this idea that partway through the tribulation that's described in the last days, that Jesus is going to come and pull his people out halfway through the tribulation, mid-tribulation. Then you have the post-tribulation, which means that the tribulation is going to come, it's going to happen to God's people, and then we're going to be raptured and taken home. Now, that's, those are too many theories for me to get figured out, right? But what we're going to look at tonight is what does the Bible have to say about these questions? We're going to start with the big picture of Jesus' second coming and understand how is this event going to take place? Is it secret or is it not? Does it happen before the tribulation, after the tribulation, during the tribulation? Is there a tribulation? We're going to be looking at these questions because I can say that this is probably one of the most convoluted topics in Christianity. Even though we might think it's pretty clear, just do a quick survey and you'll find out that there's many different beliefs. 
Now, I know you didn't come here because you just wanted a, a history lesson on what happens when Jesus comes, but we came here because we want to know what does the Bible say, right? What does Jesus say in his word? If it's important to Jesus, who should it be important to as well? Me. It should be important to us as his followers because if Jesus says it, it's important. Now, night number one, we had the opportunity of looking at the second coming and the signs of Jesus' second coming. Do any of you remember that lecture that we looked at the signs of Jesus' second coming? And we saw that Jesus is coming very soon. We also saw that in the book of Revelation that repeatedly, in Revelation chapter 1, it talks about Jesus coming back. And we're going to look at some of those passages. Repeatedly in Revelation chapter 22, Jesus coming back is the central theme. And do you think that there's one theme that Satan wants us to be a little bit confused on? And do you think there's one event Satan would like us to miss? I think he would like us to miss the second coming. He'd rather us spend a thousand years with him than the thousand years with Jesus and all of eternity with him. So before we get into the topic, we need to ask the Lord for wisdom because I don't possess it, but I know that the Lord who inspired the Bible can give us his spirit to encourage us and to guide us into all truth. Isn't that what the job of the Holy Spirit is? That when he, the spirit of truth, shall come, he will guide us into all truth. Why don't we bow our heads and pray that the Lord allows that to happen. Father in heaven, Lord, we bow before you humbly this evening because, Lord, we realize there's many different ideas on what's going to happen when you come back. And Father, we just want to know what the Bible says. There might be some people wondering here this evening if it's really important to know what the difference is. But Father, we just pray that you would guide us. That you would help us to have encouragement through your Spirit to know that Jesus is coming soon. That Jesus is coming to take us to a better place. And Lord, that we can have hope in this as a Christian. We pray that your spirit would give us wisdom as we look through the sacred pages of your word and that you would guide us closer to you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, we want to look at a couple passages of scripture that just kind of set as landmarks as to what the Bible says about the second coming. So go with me to the words of Jesus. It's always good to start with the words of Jesus, right? John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. We've looked at this a couple times. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3 and this is a beautiful passage where Jesus is talking about the blessed hope of the Christians. And notice what he says. Let not your heart be what? How many of you have ever had a troubled heart? How many of you maybe this evening even have a troubled heart? We don't want to raise our hands for that. But we realize, why would Jesus say don't let your heart be troubled? Because it's so natural to do it, right? But he says, do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, and if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will what? I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may what? Be also. You know, isn't this a beautiful promise? Jesus doesn't leave us in ambiguity. Is Jesus actually coming back to get us from this earth? Or did Jesus just create us? Did he just allow sin to happen and he's just going to leave us here on this planet to let it finish its course? Absolutely not. Jesus tells us that I am coming again, right? The reason that he's leaving is he's preparing a place for you and I and that he's going to come and receive us to himself. Now, notice, notice this passage in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, a beautiful passage of Scripture. It says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us 
that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly and righteously, right? As Christians, we turn away from the things of this world and we turn to God, right? Faith in Jesus. But notice what it continues on to say. And godly in this present age, and how are we to live? Notice what it says. Looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, who? Jesus Christ. You know, the Bible tells us most assuredly that Jesus is coming again, right? Isn't that what those passages of Scripture are telling us? That not only is He coming again, but this is really the hope of a Christian. How many of you, if God told you that you were just going to stay on this world for the rest of your life, experience sin until you die, and that was it, you would think, well, that's really fair. You know, that's really great. That gives me a lot of hope. Would that give you any hope? No, but God tells us, hey, look, you go through hard times on this life. But I'm telling you that I'm going to come again and receive you to myself. Now, praise the Lord that Jesus gives us the hope of his second coming. You see, when Jesus comes a second time, we won't see any more children on the side of the road anymore. I remember my first time visiting Africa and seeing two, three, four, five, six-year-olds sitting on the side of the road begging for food, not because they were con artists, but because they literally didn't have enough food to eat. But Jesus is saying there's a blessed hope where this is going to be taken away of. God promises that he's taking us to a place where there's not going to be any more crime. Amen? You don't have to worry about walking out late at night, but you know that there's going to be safety in heaven because God's doing away with all the destruction of this world. Also, the blessed hope gives us assurance that there's no more hospital visits. I don't know about you, but I just received a hospital bill in the mail last week. Uh, What was it, a month ago, I passed out, hit my head multiple times, and had a nice little concussion. And the the, the hospital wanted to charge me money for that, and I'm really grateful that there's going to be no hospital bills in heaven. Amen? There's not going to be any more hospital visits, and there's going to be no more concussions, and it's going to be a beautiful time where we won't even have to remember death anymore, right? We saw in Revelation chapter 20 that death is going to be swallowed up in the fires of hell. That God is not going to allow it to continue throughout all eternity, but he's going to put an end to sickness and death. Now this is the beautiful hope that we have in the second coming. This is what Jesus promises, and notice the words of Jesus specifically about this in Revelation 21. Verse 3 and 4, notice what he says. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. Now this is a, any time that you're having a down day, this is a passage you can go to and remember that it's not always going to be like this. That God promises us hope. That he tells us that there's a better future coming and that we're not going to be in the destruction of this world for the rest of our lives. That we're finally coming to a time where you and I are going to be sitting beside Jesus Christ. Isn't that a beautiful thought? That the one who died for us, the one who redeemed us with his own life, is finally going to be face-to-face with us, desiring to know us more. Now, notice this passage that comes from Dwight L. Moody. I want you to look at this. Because many people, we talked about the confusion that goes along with the second coming. But notice what he says about this. And I would happen to agree with him, but, but see if you would agree. It says, The return of the Lord to this earth is taught in the New Testament as clearly as any other doctrine in it. Would you agree with that? You know, the second coming of Jesus is not some mystical thing, but it's clearly taught. We've looked at just a few passages, and we get a clear overview of what Scripture is saying. But notice he continues on. Whoever neglects this 
has only a mutilated gospel. In other words, if you don't understand the second coming of Jesus, we have a twisted picture of what God is coming to redeem us from. Notice these words. I was in the church for 15 or 16 years before I ever heard a sermon on it. Then he continues on. I can see a reason for this. The devil does not want us to see this truth. For nothing would wake up the church so much. The moment a man realizes that Jesus Christ is coming back again to receive his followers, this world loses its hold upon him. Isn't that so true? When you realize that Jesus is coming back, when you realize that everything you own is really valueless, when you realize that when the Bible talks about us being resurrected and ascending with God to heaven, it doesn't say we're taking a trailer with this earthly belongings with us, right? We realize that this, the things of this earth really do not matter in the light of Jesus coming soon. Now this is exactly why Satan wouldn't want us to understand it fully. He would want us to be confused on this because if we can be confused about the second coming, maybe it would lessen our hope and maybe it would strengthen our hold on this world to where we wouldn't want to let go of the things of this world so, so that we could cling to Jesus. But I can tell you that it's a beautiful thing when we start to understand the truth that Jesus is coming back. Now the question that we have this evening is not whether or not Jesus is coming back, but how is Jesus coming, right? This is where the confusion is centered. Many of us would agree in this room that Jesus is surely coming back, but the question is, how is he coming back? Now, there's also some of you sitting here that's saying, you know, maybe I showed up to the wrong message because I don't really think it's that important. Does it really matter how Jesus is coming back? Now, I won't ask for a show of hands for you to think, you know, how many of you actually agree with that, but I want to ask you a question. Could it be that our understanding of Jesus coming back would prepare us or cause us to be unprepared for the event? Now just let that, let that thought play around in your mind a little bit. And I want to remind you of something that happened 2,000 years ago. Many of you are familiar with this picture or a concept comes to your mind. And you remember that Jesus first came to this world about 2,000 years ago, right? To the manger in Bethlehem. Now, have you ever stopped and wondered, and I know some of you have because you asked me specifically, why is it that the people in the time of Jesus' first coming missed his first coming? Have you ever wondered that? Why is it that the Jews, God's people, even though they had the Bible, they had the Scriptures, they had over 300 Old Testament prophecies telling them about the birth of Jesus, but yet they missed the event? Wouldn't you say as a majority, the Jewish people missed the birth of Jesus? And the question is, why is it that they missed it? Is it because they didn't have the Bible? No, no, no. Is it because they didn't have prophecy and stuff showing them about what was going to take place? No, they had it. But they had a misunderstanding about what the Bible said on the topic. Now you say, well, can you prove that to me from Scripture? And I'll let you look at a couple passages together really quick to help us to see, is it really important if we understand how Jesus is coming? Because did it really matter for the early uh, people in the time of Jesus' first coming. Now, many of us know the story that we've talked about with Jesus and John the Baptist before, a couple times already, where we've looked at John chapter 1, verse 29, where John the Baptist, seeing Jesus, yells out, Behold the Lamb of God, which does what? Takes away the sins of the world. Right? We, we looked at that many times together. And when we hear that passage coming from John, we think, man, this was a guy who was spot on. Now, praise the Lord, we're told that he's one of the most powerful prophets that ever lived, right? Isn't that what Jesus says? 
And we realize that God used him as his forerunner. But did you know that John got a little bit discouraged about Jesus' ministry? Are you guys familiar with that? Turn with me really quick to Matthew chapter 11. I want you just to see this really quickly in your own Bibles. Matthew chapter 11. And we hear the, the proclamation of John, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. And we often think, well, John obviously had it all together. But notice during some of John's most difficult times, he started to doubt if Jesus truly was the Messiah. Notice what Matthew chapter 11 says. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 2, and we notice that this is a time where John the Baptist is in prison, right before he's beheaded, and John says this in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 2, and when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, are you the coming one or do we look for a what? Another. Now, how many of you does that kind of startle after you've read John chapter 1, verse 29, where he says, Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world. And now he's saying, Hey, hey, disciples, can you go to Jesus and ask him a question? Are you the coming one? What does he mean by the coming one? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one who's going to save us from our sins? I know I proclaimed it in John chapter 1, verse 29. But is it really you? Why would John be asking that? Because he's beginning to doubt. There he is in the... the the trouble in prison, and he wonders, is it really Jesus? Is this really the Messiah who's going to save us from our sins? You see, why was it so difficult for John to believe, and we're going to see this a little more clearly in the next two passages, that for the Jews, they believed that Jesus was coming with a very different mission than what he actually came to do. The Jews believed that Jesus was coming to set up an earthly kingdom. If you doubt me, look at Acts chapter 1 verse 6, and we'll look at that a little bit later. And they believed that Jesus was coming to set up an earthly kingdom and that he would take the power away from the Roman Empire. He would kind of chop and lop the heads off the Romans and then because of that set up an earthly kingdom where his disciples, one would sit on his right hand and one would sit on his left. Remember that conversation they had? And they thought Jesus was going to have earthly power. But was that what Jesus came to do? No, Jesus came to free us from our sins. Jesus came with a spiritual mission, not to set up a physical kingdom, but to start his spiritual kingdom. Now, notice as John continues on, the words that Jesus gives him, Jesus says to John in reassurance that he is the Messiah. Notice what he says. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you have heard and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. You see, Jesus gives John the reassurance that he's the Messiah, but he doesn't give them the reassurance because, hey, don't, don't worry, in a couple days I'm getting ready to set up my kingdom, right? No, he says, I'm letting you know that the things which the Bible has predicted about me, I'm getting ready and I'm carrying them out and they're going to be carried out to their fulfillment. Now, notice this next passage of Scripture. We're going to see three places in the Bible where the disciples have a misunderstanding and all the Jewish nation at large, and this is why primarily they missed the first coming of Jesus. Notice what this says, and this is when Jesus is on the cross, and there's people surrounding the cross. This is Matthew chapter 27, verse 42. And as Jesus is hanging on the cross, notice what they say. He saved others, but himself he cannot save. And what's this next word that it says? If right? Doubting Jesus. But if he was the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross 
and we will believe him. Now, Jesus, we were told in Isaiah chapter 53, as a prophecy of Jesus' first coming, that Jesus was going to be led like a lamb to the slaughter. That Jesus was going to be, by his stripes, we are healed. And there's this imagery all throughout the Old Testament that Jesus was going to be sacrificed. Now, didn't, don't you remember in Luke chapter 9 where Jesus even tells his disciples, I'm getting ready to go to Calvary. I'm going to be sacrificed by the hands of ungodly men. Multiple times throughout the Gospels, Jesus says, I'm going to die. But even though he had said these things so much, they couldn't hear it because their perception of what he was really going to do was so completely different than what it actually was. Now, notice this next passage, and this is after the cross. You realize this is the the story of the road to Emmaus. Some of you may have heard of that before. Luke chapter 24, verse 21. And this is where the disciples are walking down the road, and they're discouraged, and they're talking to each other. And, And as they're talking to one another, they're not very happy about what's just taken place because they think Jesus is gone forever, and that all of their hopes of the Messiah were shattered because notice what it says. It says, but we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Now you might be thinking, what in the world? Jesus just died on the cross. Why are they doubting that he's going to redeem Israel? Isn't that how he redeems us? It was because of Jesus' sacrifice we have redemption. Did he redeem Israel? Absolutely. But it was because the disciples thought that Jesus was going to have physical power that he was coming to set up an earthly kingdom, that it caused them to miss the first coming of Jesus. Now, I want to ask you a question. Do you think that we're any different today? Do you think it could be that if we have such confused ideas about Jesus' second coming, that we might miss it as well? Now, let me just be 100% honest with you. I don't like to think about that thought, right? I like to think, well, I'm absolutely right. I'm always right. You know, that's, that's what it happened. But we need to come to the Bible and say, Lord, what do you really want to show us? What does the Bible really say about your second coming? Because I don't want to be like the people in the Old Testament who had the Bible. They had the words of God. They had the Spirit of God trying to work with them, right? Do you think God was just trying to lead them astray? Absolutely not. But yet it was because of their own desires, they were fabricating this other idea of what Jesus was going to be doing. Now, they twisted Scripture in order to do that, and we could talk about that at some point in another evening, but we realized that it was because of a misunderstanding of Scripture that the people were deceived. Now, they could have looked at Micah chapter 5, verse 2, where it said Jesus was going to be born of a virgin, right? But instead of using that as a reason for his identity as the Messiah, they used that to mock him, right? You don't even know who you come from. We know your father, but who's, you know, where do you, where's your father actually? Because we actually only know your mother, right? And there's, there's this little undercutting that always comes throughout the Gospels that they don't know what's taking place. But as we realize that there was confusion surrounding Jesus' first coming, Jesus tells us one thing, and this is sobering, and I'm not attempting to scare anyone, but I think a little sobriety is good for us every once in a while. Would you agree? You know, the, the uh, writer of Ecclesiastes says it's actually better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. Have you heard of that passage of Scripture before and ever thought that's confusing? In other words, it's better to go to a funeral than to a party is what he's saying. And you might say, well, why is that? Because it allows you to realize the things that really matter. In other words, we need to analyze life sometimes and say, Lord, what is it really? Now, Jesus tells us that as in the days of Noah, so also shall the coming of the Son of Man B, right? We've looked at that passage. We'll look at it again tonight. And as you remember the story of Noah, and this is a a dark picture, but you still get the concept, 
that Noah was there with many other people around them, and it wasn't because God was not giving them their word through his prophet that the people weren't saved, right? Noah was preaching for 120 years, preaching his heart. It wasn't because God didn't make it clear what was going to be happening that people weren't saved. But it was because of a confusion and because of a doubt and belief of God that caused them to be left outside of the ark. Now, we already talked about this another another night, that the majority of the people were outside the ark, not inside, right? But yet we seem to walk through the idea of the second coming, thinking that everyone is going to be saved, but sometimes we might need to be faced with the sober reality that could it be that we have a misunderstanding that might keep us out. Now, praise the Lord, we don't have to wonder, and we don't have to go home and be depressed thinking that God is not going to lead us, right? Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that says that he who started a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. God is not going to leave us here, right, if we're sincerely trying to follow him. But we have to re- remember that it was a misunderstanding of his first coming that led them to miss the Messiah. And I'm going to propose to you tonight that it's a misunderstanding of the second coming that Satan wants to do to lead us to miss out on the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, what's interesting to know is that the prophecies of the second coming, some people have counted and said that it's recorded over 2,000 times in the Bible. In other words, over and over again, the Bible writers are telling us that Jesus is coming again. It's one of the most prominent themes that we see in Scripture. And what's interesting is the average American home has four Bibles in it. Now, if you come to our house, you might even find more than four Bibles, right? And we have the access to understanding about Jesus, but tonight what we want to do is say, what does the Bible really say about the second coming? How is Jesus coming? Does it really matter? Well, it absolutely matters. It matters to the Jewish people. It must matter to Jesus because he's telling us over and over again. So what does the Bible really say about how Jesus will come back? Well, come with me to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Starting in verse 6, Acts chapter 1 and verse 6, and this is after the time of the crucifixion, right before Jesus is ascending back to the Father. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 6, and we're looking at how is it that Jesus is going to come. Acts chapter 1, and beginning in verse 6, and this is just so that we can see that there was clearly a misunderstanding from the disciples about Jesus' first coming. Now notice Jesus has already died, he's been resurrected, and he's there appearing to the disciples. And notice what Acts chapter 1 and verse 6 says. It says, therefore, when they had come together, these are the disciples, they asked him, Jesus, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the what? The kingdom of Israel. Now, did they get it? Did they get the point that Jesus isn't coming to set up an earthly kingdom? No, they still don't get it. But praise the Lord, the Lord can help us even when we don't get it. Amen? But notice what Jesus says. He goes on, and we learn many things about the coming of Jesus from these next few words. Skip down to verse 9. Now when he, Jesus, had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Right? You can imagine them standing there, looking at Jesus, and all of a sudden Jesus starts to ascend, and there's a cloud that comes over, and now they can't see Jesus ascending anymore. But notice what it says. And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who said also, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? 
this same Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you what? As you saw him go into heaven. You see, the Bible writer is saying, hey, I want you to understand one thing. You know the man that you're staring up in the sky watching ascend into heaven? Well, in the exact same way that he went up, he's going to come down. Now, this should give us some hope because there's many people who say, well, Jesus is coming in a spiritual sense. Is that what the Bible says? No, it says just in the way that he went up, that's the same way that he's coming down. Did Jesus physically go up? Yeah. Jesus is going to physically come down too. And we'll see that all throughout the New Testament. That Jesus' coming is assured that it's going to be taking place in a very literal sense, right? It's not the spiritual, mystical sense. But it's a literal sense that Jesus is coming again. I want you to notice one more thing with me in this passage. How many times do you see in this passage that words dealing with sight are mentioned? You understand what I'm saying? How many times are the words dealing with sight mentioned in just these few verses of Scripture? Now, if you look in verse 9, it says that while they did what? While they watched, right? That's a sight word. And then towards the end of that sentence, it says they were received out of, his, out of their what? Sight, okay. And they looked, looked steadfastly towards heaven and behold. What does behold mean? Look, right? Pay attention to this. Look at this. Behold, two men stood by them in white apparel who said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand what? Gazing. That's something you do when you can see something, right? Gazing up into heaven. This same Jesus who was taken up into heaven will so come in like manner as you what? Saw him go. Do you think you're going to be able to see Jesus come and go? If Jesus is coming in the same way that he went up into heaven, they were able to see him. When Jesus comes the second time, are we going to be able to see him? It's very clear in Scripture, and we're going to look at multiple places, not just basing it off of one passage of Scripture, that the coming of Jesus is literal. But also we're going to see that the coming of Jesus is very visible. In other words, when we look for the second coming, it's not going to be something secret and hidden, but it's going to be very visible and apparent to each one of us who are alive on this earth. Now, notice there's a passage of Scripture here that helps us to understand this. And it says in Revelation chapter 1 in verse 7, Behold, He is coming with what? Now, Acts chapter 1 says that He was caught up in a cloud, right? And He's coming in the exact same way, right? Behold, He's coming with clouds, and how many eyes will see Him? And every eye will see Him. I want to ask you a question. If you didn't see Jesus come, did He come? Nope. If it's not something that everyone sees, it's not Jesus. Right? Isn't that what the Bible's saying? Every eye will see him. Now, Revelation chapter 16 tells us that Satan will come down in the sight of men performing miracles in the last days. Do you think Satan or Antichrist would love to impersonate the second coming of Jesus? But I want to ask you a question. If you didn't see him, or if all of the rest of the world didn't see him, or if there was just a select group who saw him, was it Jesus? Absolutely not. He says, behold, every eye will see him. Now, notice this next passage of Scripture where we see Jesus talking about how visible His second coming will be. He says, Matthew 24, verse 27, As lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the what? Coming of the Son of Man be. Now, I had the opportunity 
of staying in Ariel's apartment before we were married. She was out of town, and I needed a place to stay that night. And so it was just me there by myself, and I was in the third story of the apartment in Lansing. Now, Lansing's a wonderful city. I wouldn't ever live there, but I, I know there's some people who really enjoy it, and we, we love our friends down there. But as I was in the apartment, there was a lightning storm that was moving through. Now, that lightning was so bright that literally at times it would crash, and I thought it was going to hit me, so I'd pull the covers over my head, right? This is kind of a funny thing and kind of embarrassing to tell you at the same time. But I'd pull the covers over my head, and it would still be, the room would be lit up as though it was bright as day. And I, my head's under the covers, and I could see clearly in the room, right? Now, what really scared me was when the lightning bolt hit the transformer that was 10 feet from the window. I thought I was dead, right? I, I felt it. I, I was checking. I, I didn't know what happened. I still had a pulse, and actually my pulse was quite accelerated. But we realized that when lightning happens, it's very visible, right? And Jesus says his coming is going to be like lightning that stretches all the way from the east and goes all the way to the west. Is there any way that you're going to miss that burst of lightning? Absolutely not. It's going to be bright. It's going to be visible. And we realize that this is what Jesus tells us about the second coming. We've learned, number one, it's a literal event. Amen? It's not a spiritual thing that happens, but it's a literal coming of Jesus. Number two is it's visible. It's going to be clear to all of us to see. No one is going to have the inside scoop of when Jesus really comes. If you see it on CNN that he came in Africa but not America, that's not the Jesus we're looking for. But Jesus says that every eye will see him. It's going to be a visible event. Now my next question, is the coming of Jesus going to be a quiet event? In other words, maybe it's literal. Maybe everyone will see him. But as he's coming in the clouds, is it just like he's on mute? coming down quietly. Now, notice what this passage of Scripture says. Psalm chapter 50 and verse 3. Our God shall come and shall not what? Keep silent. A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very tempestuous all around him. Now, do you think you're going to miss this? If God is not quiet, and that's another way of saying that God is going to be loud, right? When God comes back, do you think he's going to be excited to meet his bride? Do you think he's going to be longing to be with his people? You can just imagine the shout of God coming out. Our God is coming, and he shall not keep quiet. Now, I want to ask you a question. It says, fire shall devour before him. And we already saw that the wicked, at the time of Jesus' second coming, they are going to be consumed by the brightness of his coming, right? Revelation chapter 6, verse 14 through 17 talks about the righteous are going to go with Jesus, but then the wicked are going to be slain in the presence of Jesus' coming. And as you see the fire devouring, and it's tempestuous all around, do you think that's an event that you can miss? In other words, could you just sleep too heavy to miss that event? No, Jesus is going to wake you up, right? It's going to be very clear that the second coming is taking place. Now, you might be saying, why in the world are we going through this? I know all this. Well, there, we do have a very specific point, but notice what we've looked so far. Jesus' coming is literal. It's visible. And it's going to be very, very audible. Now, notice these next passages of Scripture talking about how audible or how loud the second coming will be. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I didn't put this one on the screen because sometimes I like you to know that I'm not just making this up, right? I want us to get us in the Bible. And we had to flip through it. And I know it takes me forever to get somewhere, but it just encourages me to do it when you're all staring at me. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So we'll just do it together. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we're understanding 
is this going to be a silent event? Well, Psalms didn't make it sound like it was going to be silent. But notice what Paul says. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13. He says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have what? Fallen asleep. Now what is he talking about? He's not talking about those who have just taken a nap during the day, right? No, the sleep of death, right? We've seen that through Scripture, that God is telling us we rest in the grave awaiting the resurrection. I don't want you to be ignorant about that. Lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. You see, God says he doesn't want us to be sorrowful. He wants to give us hope. And what's the hope? He told us it's the resurrection, right? He's coming back. And notice what he says. For if you believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus, right? God is going to bring us with him back to heaven. Now, verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. In other words, those who are alive don't get a head start on those who are in the grave, right? We're going together. Verse 16. Notice the language here. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a what? A loud command or a shout. Now, if I were to shout, do you guys think it would hurt your ears because I have a microphone in my hand? Oh, yeah, probably. Now, what about if God shouted? I mean, do you think God has any lack of lung capacity? No, you realize the shout of the Lord would probably be something you could hear, well, around the world, because that's where they're going to see him. But notice it continues on. With the voice of an archangel. I don't know what an archangel sounds like, but it's probably got quite the voice. And with the trumpet of God. Is the trumpet a quiet instrument? We have a friend who's he's a trumpeter at... MSU. He plays for Michigan State and different things like that. And he's from Haiti, one-armed trumpeter. If you ever see him, you won't forget him. And I had the opportunity of living in East Lansing. And where I lived, there was the church next door that he would go into and practice the trumpet. Now, I was in the house in the second story with all of the windows closed, right? It's cold. It was the middle of winter. But my friend got his trumpet out in the church of the next building, right? It's the next building over, not attached to the house that I lived in or anything like that. All of the windows are closed in the church and in the house. And as I'm inside the house, in the middle of it, not standing next to a window, I just start to hear these trumpet blasts of someone playing the trumpet. Now, this is just a little man playing the trumpet about 200 yards next to me with brick buildings in between, and I can still hear him pretty well, right? The trumpet isn't something you listen to to go to sleep. The trumpet's something you listen to, and it's a rousing instrument, right? And we realize that when God comes with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, is it going to be quiet? No, some people have called 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, one of the noisiest verses in all the Bible, because this is what we're going to be hearing. And what happens at the end of this? Notice it says, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. You see, God promises that when he comes, it's going to be a literal event. It's going to be a visible event. And it's going to be an audible event that none of us are going to miss. And at his coming, we're going home. Amen? You know, the Lord is promising that He has a better place for us, and when He comes at the time we won't miss, we know that that's when we're caught up together with Him and we meet the Lord in the air. I don't know about you, but I'm really excited for that day when we finally get to leave this earth and be with Jesus face to face. 
Now, notice this next passage. Not only does Jesus come in all these ways, but notice what this passage adds to our understanding about the concept of how Jesus comes. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 30. It says, They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and what? Great glory. Now, is it hard for you to imagine great glory? I mean, we don't really have glorious things on this earth, right? Maybe nice buildings or someone who's beautiful or whatever else. You know, that might be a little bit glorious. But the Lord is coming with great glory. Now, we know in other passages of Scripture that he's bringing all of his angels with him. Isn't that going to be an amazing event where you see heaven emptied so that we can experience what it's like when Jesus comes to see the glorious coming of not only our Lord, our God, and our Savior, but all of the angels with him. Now, I want to remind you of something, and we won't turn there for sake of time, but Matthew chapter 28, after Jesus is crucified, it's Sunday morning, and Jesus is still in the tomb, right? Jesus rose on Sunday, but we realize that something happened before he came up. And it tells us in Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 4, that there was an angel that came down from heaven. Now, how many angels does it mention there? It says that there's one angel, an angel, that comes down from heaven. And as the angel comes down from heaven, it says that he rolls away the stone of the tomb and then he sits on it. But what happens to all of the people who are around the tomb? All of those hardened, tough Roman soldiers, they're just like blown over. It says they fall over like dead men. Now that's what happens when one angel comes. What do you think is going to happen when all of heaven is emptied out and all of the angels come? Do you think it's going to be a glorious event? It's going to be a powerful experience when we see that the glory of God is descending on this earth. You see, the Bible tells us that the coming of Jesus is going to be literal, it's going to be visible, it's going to be audible, and it's not going to be a half-done job, but it's going to be glorious, right? It's going to be a beautiful concept of God welcoming us home to his kingdom. Now, I want to ask you a question. Some people believe that when Jesus comes, it's going to be a secret. In other words, there's the idea of the secret rapture, right? We're looking at that. When we're caught up to God secretly. Is it possible, do you think, after reading these passages of Scripture, to have a secret rapture? Does that sound pretty secret? I mean, if, if this is secret, it's one of the worst kept secrets in all of humanity, right? Hey, hey, it's a secret, but I'm coming literally, right? It's a secret, but I'm going to yell when I get there. It's a secret, but I'm going to blow a trumpet. It's secret, but it's going to be as bright as lightning, right? No, it's not a secret. We realize that the coming of Jesus is going to be a very well-known event that is not a secret. Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians. We were just in 1 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 7. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 7. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 7. And notice what Paul says. It says, And to give you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe, because our testimony among us 
because our testimony among you was believed. Now, what is Paul saying here? He says when you're coming, it's going to be a glorious time, right? This is the time when the people of God are finally going to be taken to heaven. Are the people of God taken to heaven before Jesus comes? Well, why would he come then? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says that Jesus is coming and that we're going to be brought, caught up to meet him in the air, right? Those who are dead are going to go up and then we which are alive and remain are caught up in the Lord with the Lord to meet him in the air. And the only time that we see that the saints are met with Jesus is when Jesus comes at the second time. It's going to be a very visible and not a secret time. Talking about here that there's the destruction that takes place of the wicked. There's the ascending of the righteous and it's not going to be a secret event. Now, did you actually know that Jesus warned us about people who told us that the second coming would be a secret? Did you know that? Jesus tells us that there's going to be a lot of deception surrounding his second coming. Now, look with me at that. Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. And we're going to be in Matthew 24 for a little bit of time. So don't be discouraged. Even if you find it after we're reading, it's still worth finding it. Matthew chapter 24. And notice what Jesus says here. We're going to be looking at some powerful passages of Scripture that help us to see that Jesus not only didn't teach that his coming is not a secret, but that he also taught that those who teach it's a secret are deceived. Now, notice what he says here. Matthew chapter 24, and notice verse 3, just to get the context of what we're talking about. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 3. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, this is Jesus who's sitting, right? The disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the what? The end of the age. Jesus, his disciples, are asking him about the second coming, right? And notice the very next words of Jesus in verse 4. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one does what? deceives you. Did Jesus understand that there was going to be deception and a misunderstanding surrounding his second coming? Well, he wouldn't have said don't be deceived if he didn't understand that, right? And notice one of the specific ways in which he says that people are not supposed to deceive you. Notice what he says, and I have this one on the screen for ease, and it's verse 24 if you want to follow along in your Bible. Matthew chapter 24, verse 24. He says, for false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive. Can we believe everything that we see? The Bible says that there's going to be deceptions that would lead us away, and we have to believe what the Bible says, not just what we see, right? Now, notice it continues on. That with um, great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the who? Even the elect. Now, I want to ask you, who are the elect? Is it just the people who study the Bible all day? Is it just the people who are sitting in a university teaching religion? Is it just a pastor? No, no, no. God's people, right? The believers. Those who are earnestly seeking the Bible, right? The elect. Could it be that the elect, as God was thinking that, he's thinking of those sitting in this room tonight. Amen? By God's grace, we're studying his Bible. We want to be true citizens of God's kingdom and properly understand what he teaches, right? And notice what he says, that he's going to even try to deceive the elect. And how is he going to do that? See, I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he is in a desert, do not go out. Or look, he is in inner rooms, do not what? Believe it. And then he continues on, and he tells us why we're not supposed to believe that. 
Because we see that Jesus is saying that the, the event of his second coming would be so clearly visible to all people, right? If someone's saying it's just happening in this isolated place, don't believe them. But what these people are teaching is that the second coming of Jesus is kind of a secretive thing, right? You know, you, you didn't see it, but Jesus really came here last night, and, and he, he took some people home, and I just want to let you know that Jesus came. And Jesus says, hey, if you hear that, if you hear anyone promoting the idea that there's going to be a secret coming or a secret rapture, that this is not something that I've taught. I've told you that it's going to be very visible to everyone who studies the Bible. Now, notice what he continues on to say. Jesus says, in, in continuing with this thought, he says, For as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, we had already looked at that passage, but Jesus reiterates this right after when he says, if someone's trying to tell you it's secret, just remind them of the fact that as lightning flashes from the east to the west, that's going to be how secret the coming of the Son of Man is, right? It's going to be clearly visible to all people. Now, does the Bible tell us anything more about his second coming. You know, there's many people who say, well, Jesus is coming as a thief in the night. And is that what the Bible says? Does the Bible teach that Jesus is coming as a thief in the night? Right? There's several passages of Scripture. Now, there's some people that say Jesus is coming as a thief in the night, which means when he comes, you won't see him. Okay? Let's, let's just go to the Bible and say, is that what the Bible is teaching? Right? Because if the Bible says that Jesus is coming as a thief in the night, and because he's coming as a thief in the night, that we won't see him, then we might need to adjust our understanding of certain things, but that's not what we've gotten so far, right? Notice what Jesus says, and this is in Matthew chapter 24, continuing in verse 36. Matthew chapter 24, and in verse 36. Notice what Jesus says here. He says, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. What is Jesus talking about here? The timing of his second coming, right? No one knows when it is. If I were to tell you Jesus is coming tomorrow, you'd better walk out because that's not true, right? We don't know when Jesus is coming. The Bible says clearly that only the Father know. Now notice in that same train of thought. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the flood came, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now I want to ask you a question. Was the reason why the people were lost in the days of Noah because Noah was secretly building this ark and didn't allow anyone to see it? And they didn't know that there was a flood? It, was that the secret? Was that the problem why Jesus was coming at a time when they didn't expect? No. It's because they didn't know the timing and they mocked God and thought, maybe I have a little more time. I don't need to get in that ark. You've been preaching 120 years. And then before they knew it, their time to accept Jesus was closed. Now, Jesus says it's going to be like that in the, the time of the end. In other words, there's going to be a time where Jesus says the door of probation is closed. And there's no more time to accept Jesus. And that's why we don't wait past today, right? If we haven't accepted Jesus today, we do that now. We don't wait till tomorrow. But notice what he continues on to say. And we'll come back and look at these specific verses in more detail in a second. It says, Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two, men will be, two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. And notice verse 42. Watch therefore, for you do not know what, what, what is that next word? 
what hour your Lord is coming. Okay, that's the second time we've heard Jesus talking about the timing, right? Verse 38, you don't know, only my Father. Verse 42, you don't know the timing of his coming. And verse 43, notice what it says. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at a what? An hour you do not expect. Now, I want to ask you a question. When Jesus is talking about his coming being as a thief in the night, is he talking about his coming being something that we won't see? Or is he talking about his coming being something that we won't know what time it takes place? Now, there's two things about a thief in the night, right? Sure, you can't see them. Sometimes you can see them, but most of the times you can't. But that's not what Jesus is emphasizing here, right? Did you ever see Jesus say anything about, you know, I'm coming like a thief in the night, so you won't see me? There's nothing found in those passages. But he says, I'm coming as a thief in the night because you don't know when I'm coming. Now, if you guys knew that a burglar was coming into your house at 7.15 tonight, would you have come here or stayed there or called the police to stay there, right? You would have done something about it. But you see, it's because we don't know when they're coming that we can't fend it off. But we realize that Jesus' coming is going to be like that. We don't know the timing of his coming, but we do know the signs, amen? Jesus says we can know the times and the seasons, and that's what he talks about in the prior verses. But we don't know the actual timing of his coming. This is clearly what Jesus is talking about when he talks about his coming being as a thief. It's not that the flood, as in the days of Noah, uh, didn't, they didn't see it, but the flood was a surprise, not a secret, right? They didn't know the time. It's not that they didn't know the event. And this is the exact same thing that we see Jesus talking about. Now look at these next two passages that talk about Jesus coming as a thief. The first one is not on the screen, and it's 1 Thessalonians. For those of you who are getting tired of looking for the Thessalonians book, this is one of the last times we're going to be looking at it for tonight. But 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and this also is another passage of Scripture where we find Jesus talking about his coming being as a thief in the night. Now we want to understand what Jesus is truly meaning. Is he giving us a different aspect here? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 1. Notice what Paul says. But concerning the times and seasons, brethren... You have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a what? A thief in the night, right? Once again, we see the passage here. Notice verse 3. For when they say peace and safety, then what? Sudden destruction comes upon them. As labor pangs upon a pregnant woman. And they shall not escape it. Now, do labor pains come secretly? Do you not know when they come? Is it just kind of like, oh, poof, there's the baby? Well, that would be really nice, right? No, no, no. It's not that you don't know the event that's happening. It's not that it's a secret, but it's you don't know the time, right? Once again, you don't know the timing of it. But notice what it continues on. Verse 4, but you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. Did you, did you read that? But you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should not overtake you as a thief. Well, this is interesting. Jesus says, I'm coming as a thief in the night multiple times. But he says, I want to let you know something. Those who are in the church, those who are God's people, those who are listening, it's not supposed to take you as a thief. Notice how he continues on in verse 5. You are the sons of the light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us, what's that word? Watch 
and be sober. You see, Jesus tells us that I've given you signs all, the, all through Matthew chapter 24. And yeah, I'm coming as a thief, but I'm coming as a thief to those who don't expect me to come. But you're not one of them, right? We're searching our Bibles. We're reading the signs of Jesus. Sure, we don't know the day or the hour. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to say that. But we can start to say, hey, it looks like Jesus is getting closer to coming, right? Jesus is coming soon. And Jesus says that, yes, I'm coming as a thief, but it's for those who don't understand that I'm coming. Now look at this last passage that deals with Jesus coming as a thief. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. It says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be what? Burned up. Now, I don't know about, about, about this, but does it sound like this can take place and be a secret? Be something that's not seen? You see, the Lord is coming as a thief in the night. Okay, is he talking about something that we won't hear? No, no. It's the heavens will pass away with what? Great noise. I think we'll hear that, right? When the heavens pass away, you're going to hear it with great noise. And the elements will melt with fervent heat. When everything around you starts to melt and crumble, and Jesus is coming, I think we're going to see it. It's not going to be a secret. It's not going to be something hidden, but it's something known to all of us. Now, we want to go back and look at the question, what about those two people? The Bible says that there's, there was one taken and one left. One taken and one left. Does that mean that it's a secret taking and that they're, they're raptured away? Or what is the Bible saying about this? Notice the passage on the screen. We've placed it up there for ease. And it's Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. It says, But of that day and hour knows no one, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the flood, until Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now this is what we're looking at. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken, and the other one left. Two women will be in the field, one taken, and the other will be left. Now, notice what the Bible likens us to. He says the experience of one being taken and one being left will be just like it was in the day of Noah, right? Isn't that what he's saying? I'm not making that up. This is the context that's given here. Jesus says, as in the days of Noah, just like there was one who was in the field, one was taken and one was left. Two ladies at the mill, one was taken, one was left. Now, I want to ask you a question. At the time of Noah, when there were two people working, was there one who was raptured away before the flood came and one who was left there to die? Is, is that what happened? No. Okay, so then that, that helps us to kind of understand this, this idea. Now, then what is the Bible talking about when it has this idea of there's one, two people and one's taken and one is left? Now, let me just tell you that I think it's very clear what the Bible is talking about. That there's two people with the exact same opportunity and one is saved, and one is lost. Isn't that what it's saying? Two people with the exact same occupation. One's in the field, two are in the field. One is taken, where, I mean we have the idea that they're taken to heaven. One is left. Now we know those who are left on the earth at Jesus' second coming. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's a bad thing, right? Now then we have the two ladies at the mill. One is taken, one is left. Now why would God add that in our understanding of the second coming? 
You see, God is saying something here that's very clear. I'm not playing favorites. Do you get that? In other words, it's not based on your occupation. If you work in the field and not at the mill, it's not that those at the mill get to go to heaven. But you see, there's two people who can have the exact same opportunity, the exact same warning, and the exact same knowledge of the events that are coming, but only one will be saved. Isn't that what happened in the days of Noah? All of those people who heard the preaching, they had the exact same knowledge. They had the exact same warning. They could see the ark just like anyone else would, but only one was taken and the other was left. You know, I think this leads us to a very clear understanding that in the time of Jesus' second coming, there's only two classes of people. There's those who are saved and those who are lost. The Bible doesn't say that there's any middle ground for those who haven't accepted yet to kind of sit in limbo, right? But we realize that the choices are decided. When Jesus comes again, some people, I've I've had this question come now a couple times throughout this series, and they ask, you know, so when is it that we can repent for the last time, or when can we turn to God for the last time? And I think it's very clear from the Bible that we see it's only before the second coming that we have any chance to turn to Jesus. But some people think, well, maybe if I wait, maybe, maybe God will give me another opportunity or another opportunity. Maybe after death, once I enter into death, God will give me another opportunity to choose life. Well, is that what the Bible says? Do we see that anywhere in Scripture? No, we see throughout the Bible that in, throughout our lives that God is constantly, time and time again, giving us many opportunities. How many of you have had more than one opportunity to know Jesus? How many of you are so thankful that the Lord didn't give up on you? And the Lord is so merciful and He's constantly pleading with us, but there finally comes a time where He says, hey look, one's going to be saved and one's going to be lost, and it's not because I'm an arbitrary God, but it's because those who want to be with me are going to be with me. Those who want to be lost and go the ways of this world, that's the way they can go. Jesus makes the understanding of His second coming very clear. Is it going to be a secret rapture? I don't see it anywhere in Scripture. I don't see it where the Bible talks about someone can be raptured away from God. And if you have questions about that or specific passages of Scripture, please put it in the question box. We'd love to look at that. And we want to know, what is the Bible saying? It says that it's going to be a literal event. It's going to be visible. It's going to be audible. It's going to be glorious. And the Lord is coming soon. And we know that because He's coming soon that we have to make a choice, right? We have to know, am I right with God today? Not should I be right with God in 20 years. But today is the day of salvation, the Bible tells us. Now, I want to ask a question. Where did this idea of the secret rapture come from? You know, where is this idea coming from that you're going to be raptured out and that you're going to be taken away from the Bible? Or you're going to be taken away secretly when no one's looking? Now, it was during the time, and I I don't know if I've included the slide this time, but we're going to talk about this a little bit more on Saturday morning. But there was a time during the Council of Trent when the church was getting in the hot seat for being accused of being the Antichrist. Now you say, what church? And I'll, I'll tell you that we're going to look at that Saturday morning. And so you won't want to miss that, right? Which, who is the Antichrist and what does the Bible have to say about it? Now there was a church that was being accused of being the Antichrist because of the understanding of prophecy. Now you say, what understanding of prophecy? Well, it's very clear in Daniel chapter 7 who's the Antichrist. And we're going to see that very clearly as as clear as day. And in Daniel chapter 8 and 9, we can see that the Bible gives us more details about Jesus Christ and what's the events leading up to Antichrist. Well, what's interesting is during the Council of Trent, they they took something and they said, "I I want two guys to try to solve this problem. Now, this isn't something I'm just making up. I would encourage you to look it up on Wikipedia, whatever your favorite resource site is. And the first one is Luis Alcazar. 
Now, Luis, they said, hey, I want to charge you to look at prophetic interpretation and try to understand how it is that we can kind of get the focus off of us and onto someone else so that we don't have this issue anymore. And Luis said, okay. So he wrote a nice large book. You know, if you write a nice large book, everything you say in it has to be true, right? And so Luis writes this large book, and at the end of the book, they realized that his summary or his understanding was that all of the prophecies of the Bible took place in the first century A.D. In other words, by A.D. 100, all of the prophecies of the Bible had been finished. Now, we call this preterism, for those of you who have heard that understanding before, that they just shifted all of the light. It's already happened. It's in the past. It can't be us. You know, it's already taken place. Okay. Well, then there's another guy who was also charged, and his name was Francisco Ribera. Now, Francisco Ribera came up with another understanding, and he wrote a nice large book. And once again, if you write a nice large book, anything you say in it must be true. And he came up with the idea of futurism. Oh, no, no, no. Antichrist hasn't come yet. We can't be the Antichrist. It's coming in the future. Now, they're like, well, what do we do? We have this guy who's saying it's in the past, the other one who's saying it's in the future. Well, we're going to adopt both of those because either way you go, the light's off of us. So you have this idea of futurism coming about and the idea that the Antichrist is coming. Now, what's really interesting and very alarming, and it'll be alarming to you because we've studied this as well already, is that they took a prophecy that we've already looked at, and instead of applying it to Jesus Christ, they said it was Antichrist. Now, notice, notice with me what we found. we found. We found this prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. Do you remember this when we talked about the judgment hour and things of that nature? If you don't, go ahead and get the audio on it. You'll want to listen to this. And they took this prophecy of the 70-week period, remember, which is part of the 2300-day prophecy, and we saw very clearly that the... the according to Ezekiel chapter 7, verse 17, that the decree was started in 457 B.C. Now, that decree went up until the baptism of Jesus, A.D. 27. Remember, we saw that. That was the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. It wasn't guesswork. It was clearly what the Bible was predicting, right? And then we saw that Jesus was crucified in the middle of that year, A.D. 31. He was cut off not for himself, but for the people, cause a sacrifice to cease. Only Jesus could cause sacrifice to cease. And then the Gentiles, in uh, AD 34, the gospel was primarily given to them and shifted away from the Jews. Remember, we looked at this together. Now, what they did with this prophecy was they cut off the last week, and they put a gap in between the two, and they call it the gap theory. Now, where do you find the gap theory in the Bible? You don't. Now, they put the gap theory in there, and instead of applying this to the anti, uh, instead of applying it to Jesus Christ, they applied it to Antichrist. And they say that somewhere around the midst of the week, Antichrist will come, and there will be this experience. But you know what's really nice is that this is what we know as the seven years of tribulation. That's where they get this concept from. Now, where do they get this concept of seven years of tribulation? It's not in the Bible. It's from twisted understanding of prophecy. And all of the righteous go to heaven before the seven years of tribulation, unless you believe in the mid tribulation, which means you leave there, or unless you're post-trib, which means you leave there. Well, either way you go, you're leaving somewhere in that time period, and Antichrist is coming. Most of the saints are up in heaven, and it's just the wicked people on this earth, and during that time, the wicked people, after Jesus has already come, now have the choice to turn to God for a second time. Now, this is where they get this idea. It's nowhere found in the Bible. If you want support for it, I would have to try to make something up to give it to you, but we can't find it in Scripture. You see, it's very clear that it's talking about Jesus Christ, not Antichrist. Now, it's really interesting that 
Antichrist means that one who stands in the place of Christ. And what did they do? They made Antichrist stand in the place of Christ in the prophecy talking about Jesus. Now, anytime someone twists Scripture to pull my mind away from Jesus and move it to Satan, I have a little bit of a hard time doing that, especially when it's very clear in the Bible that God is not talking about that. And so many people have started to come up with this theory, well, what does the Bible really say? And then there was a popular series that was put out that made this concept more acceptable to understand, and it's called the Left Behind series. How many of you have heard the Left Behind series? Now, if you take your Left Behind series book, and I, I hope it's the same today. I was going to go to Walmart and buy one. But you flip it over, and on the, top, or on the back it says the genre of literature it is, and it says fiction. Now, I think we need to remember that, that it's not true to the Bible. In other words, they're just, I mean, it makes a great story, right? You know, you're driving your car, and you're sucked up out of there, and your car crashes, and, you know, watch out, you know, rapture taking place soon. You see those bumper stickers or whatever on the back of cars. But we realize that this is not what the Bible says. Now, I want to ask you a question. If you were the devil, how would you try to get people unprepared for the second coming? What if you told them that they could live their lives however they wanted for all of, eternity, for all of their existence, because in the last bit of their life, they would just go through a seven-year period of tribulation, but they could choose God then. And as long as they choose God during while Antichrist is reigning and stuff like that, then they could make it to heaven. Well, that seems easy enough, right? As long as you can spot being persecuted and deal with that for seven years, you're okay. And Satan wanted people to think that it's okay to not make your choice to follow God today, but you can do it on the future. I want to ask you, is that safe? Is that anywhere in Scripture? No, today is the day of salvation that we find in the Bible. You know, some people ask, well, what about the tribulation? Does the Bible talk about a tribulation? Does the Bible talk about a bad time? Well, it doesn't talk about a seven-year tribulation. Praise the Lord. Amen. But in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus does talk about it. And I won't go into all the passages because we've run out of time. But Matthew chapter 24, verse 21 through 31, you can kind of read those whole 10 verses right there and understand what Jesus says about the great tribulation happening. But one of the blessings that Jesus says is that he's going to cut it short for the sake of the elect. Now, praise the Lord that God is not going to allow us to face anything in which we can't handle, right? There might be some people who say, well, I, I like the idea of the rapture because I'm going to be pulled out before tribulation comes. I want to ask you in Scripture, has God ever removed persecution from his people? Has God ever not allowed someone to go through hard times? Is that what he promises? Be become a Christian and you'll never have a hard time again? No, he promises that during the hard times, where is he? Right there with us. And we see this all throughout Scripture. Remember the story of Daniel chapter 3 where these, the three Hebrew boys were forced to worship something and they said, well, God says that we shouldn't bow down to anything. We're not going to break the Ten Commandment law of God. We're going to be His saints, right? Keeping the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. So they didn't bow down. And where was Jesus in that persecution? Right there next to them in the fire is what Daniel chapter 3 tells us. We realize that in Daniel chapter 6 there was a similar experience that happened, right? that God's people were once again brought in conflict with the law of the land, and Daniel chose to stand fast to God. Instead of just bowing the knee, he actually was thrown into the lion's den because of his faithfulness to God. But where was God? God was there shutting the mouths of the lions, right? Daniel just had a really great time with an up-close zoo exhibit of the lions, right? Petting the lions and spending a great time with them, and God turned the persecution into a blessing. Do you think that God's still able to do that today? You know, God wants to use 
persecution and hard times to be a blessing to us. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, God tells us that he uses the hard times to purify us. It draws us closer to him. As we see the sacrifice of Jesus and the suffering he went through, as we begin to suffer like Jesus, we understand what he went through, right? We're closely related to him. And God never promised that he would remove persecution, but God just promised that he would be there with us through it. Now, the Bible's clear, Revelation chapter 22 and verse 11, that there's a time where God is going to be speaking these words before he comes, right as he's coming, he's going to say, he who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he who is holy, let him be holy still. You know, the question is, what side are we going to be on? We don't have till tomorrow to make our decision. The Lord wants us to make a decision tonight. God wants us to be close to him tonight. We want to have the assurance of salvation tonight. Amen? We don't have to walk out of this building questioning whether or not we can be right with God, but we know that as he faithfully reveals himself to us, and we say, Lord, I'm willing to walk closer to Jesus. I'll accept your grace of salvation. And not only accept the forgiveness of my sins, but your grace that empowers me to have your law written in my heart and in my mind, right? The new covenant experience. Lord, I want to have this experience today. Is this your desire? Lord, please, by your grace, help me not to continue to put off the idea that I can be right for your second coming someday in the future. But Lord, by your grace, I want to make that decision tonight. I don't want there to be anything between me and the Savior. But truly, I just want to know by God's grace that I can be ready for when he comes. Is that your desire? Lord, give me that peace. Give me that assurance that I can know that I have Christ in my heart, that I'm walking in his law, and that by his grace we'll be with him when he comes. Why don't we bow our heads for prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the privilege of studying together. Lord, we thank you that you make things clear to us in your word. Lord, we see that so many things are becoming confusing around us. But Lord, we don't want to just go with popular opinion or what seems to be fashionable to believe. But Father, we want to understand the truth of Jesus. Father, we understand that it was confusion about the first coming that caused the Jews to miss it. And Lord, we don't want to have confusion about your second coming. We're so thankful that it's going to be so plain as day, that it's going to be visible, that it's going to be audible and glorious in a literal event. And Father, by your grace, we want to be there. Lord, you see our hands and our hearts. Guide us, give us your strength. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.